This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I called up Gulchetra Hoja because I wanted her to translate this moment for me. If you're watching the Olympics, you might remember it. It was during the opening ceremonies. And welcome back to this opening ceremony from Beijing, China. As dancers whizzed around them, two athletes appeared with the Olympic flame, officially opening the games. They were all smiles as they placed a tiny torch in the center of a giant matrix of snowflakes. Then fireworks erupted. But the identity of one of these athletes, a downhill skier from the Xinjiang province, alarmed some viewers. Because this skier, she's Uyghur, a member of a minority group that the U.S. says the Chinese government is trying to systematically eliminate. Are you watching the Olympics? Uh, No, (laughs) not at all. Even my kids rejected. Gulchetra. Her friends call her ghoul, is Uyghur too. This Olympic is about our dignity, you know, so we reject to watch it. Ghoul heard about this moment, of course. Its trollishness seemed to strike her as almost funny. <laughs> it's a very natural reaction. We all see that as a Chinese government using this girl to cover up the Uyghur genocide. Do you worry that some people might see that and think 
it was a message of unity, like everything's okay? I don't think world is that naive, no. I don't think uh, anybody who knows the China, who knows the situation in Uyghur region, they will never, you know, see that way, I see. Today on the show, if you know much of anything about the situation in the Uyghur region, it's because of the journalism of people like Ghoul. She left her hometown 20 years ago, and the reporting she's done in the years since means she may never be able to go back. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Chinese name for the region where Ghoul grew up is Xinjiang, or New Frontier. But for Uyghurs, like Ghoul, this frontier is not new at all. It's their homeland. And Ghoul says, growing up, she had this sense of Uyghur pride. That was partially because of her family, but also because of when she was growing up, in the late 80s and the early 90s. Back then, the Uyghur region, which Ghoul calls East Turkestan, was in transition. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, was incentivizing Han Chinese to move here, but they weren't violently forcing Uyghurs to assimilate the way they are now. I think we are the lucky generation who born after, you know, 70s, 80s, the relaxed um, couple of decades. We can use our own language to study in the school and we can read some Uyghur books, you know. We don't have... Uh, really uh, religious freedom over there, but still we can see our elderly grandpa, grandmas um, can pray. We can uh, learn our own tradition, uh, lifestyle. That's the totally different, uh, you know, uh, from now. It sounds like a window of freedom. Yeah, a little bit, little bit. We can compare to now, it's we can call it little have freedom, of course. That's why we can, we have that um, proud to be Uyghur. That that feelings, very strong feelings. I understand that you grew up just down the street from the regional museum where your dad worked as an archaeologist, and your grandfather was a Uyghur musician. Can you explain the Uyghur culture and and what are some of the core elements of it for someone like me who's not able to go there i i am very lucky to grow up uh grown up such a rich a culture family um and my father was working in xinjiang museum and every day i went to museum uh because our home was behind the museum the whole museum was like uh in my memory like my playground what was your favorite exhibit 
you know, the, the, the Silk Road. <laughs> uh, I imagine myself in the middle of the desert, you know, princess, you know, and I love our uh, clothes, very beautiful. Everybody have long hair, Uyghur women, so pretty, and our food, you know, most delicious food in the world, I think. <laughs> Maybe any culture, they feel their food is the best, but really, really, Uyghur food is very delicious. <laughs> so eventually, you grew up, you went to university, you decided to go into broadcasting. Why did you want to do that? Like, why did you want to be on TV? Uh, I studied in normal university, Uyghur language and literature. And uh, when we practice uh, in the last year for, for before the graduation, we practice in the schools, uh, become a teacher, of course. And I feel like I should have more kids to teach. I feel <laughs> I really want to share all my knowledge with Uyghur kids. Let them know who they are beyond the books. I read that in your first television appearance, you wore a floral hat and your hair in two ponytails. It was like this iconic Uyghur image. Yes. I want to the followers uh who's watching my TV, wants them to be a uh, look like Uyghur, speak like Uyghur, think like Uyghur. That's why I was preparing myself, even my look, my language, all. And that's why my program was so um, loved by not only children, teachers, even the grandparents, parents, all loves that show. Was that a big deal for you to go on TV and present as just like completely Uyghur? Yeah, because we feel the pressure that time. We feel more Han Chinese um, people coming and also the policy toward Uyghurs are more, you know, have assimilation uh, and the propaganda. So that time we were fighting for keep our identity. Of course, sometimes um, I get trouble <laughs> and warnings as well. Ghoul became a household name after appearing on Xinjiang TV, hosting the first children's program in the region. She was a presenter on Chinese state media. She was even in commercials and music videos. This video is set in the mountains of Central Asia. And the song, Ghoul says, is about love and appreciation for one's homeland. It's one of only a few remnants of her work in China before she got erased for speaking out. You've described a trip you took to Europe in 2001 as a turning point for you, a moment where you, you literally never went back, which it's so dramatic in some ways, it's almost unbelievable that you that you would leave China and then have this realization and just never go back. How did it even happen? When I come to Europe, I have uh, freedom to see all the internet, you know, what's happening outside of Uyghur region, what is uh, the, the Uyghur movement look like, you know, 
what kind of contribution they doing the outside Uyghurs. So I watch all. In Europe, I had the chance to listening Radio Free Asia, and I listen whole year program. Really? Yes, whole years program. It's like the half an hour show that time every day. You know, it's totally different from what we are producing to people, of course. And I feel guilty. I feel shame. You know, I was so proud to be a TV host, or to be a journalist, to be a famous in the Uyghur region. But that shows what I'm doing is just like a propaganda, not enough, you know, not enough for proud to be, you know, broadcast or a journalist. It's no freedom over there. And I feel there's nothing to proud of. So what should I do? What's my parents' wish? I think very deep and I change my mind at time. I feel like I cannot go, go back and continue what I was doing. And I was thinking what you can see freely, think freely, speak freely. That's called happiness. That's called freedom. That's why I choose that, um, you know, and I make decision. The decision Ghoul made was to show up at the offices of Radio Free Asia and ask for a job. It was a gutsy move. RFA is funded by the U.S. government. The Chinese consider its work propaganda. But RFA welcomed her. She was a familiar face to some of the staffers, a bit of a celebrity. Some colleagues were giddy to have such a high-profile defector from the Chinese Communist Party. They were so proud. Even a director of RFA, he was saying, oh, we win, CCP, we, uh, we got you, you know. <laughs> Immediately, the next day I start, I was like giving my 100% energy to the work. And I didn't pay attention what Chinese government doing. When did you know you wouldn't be able to go back? After first call to my father. Yeah, my parents. After two weeks, I called them. After I came to uh, U.S., I chose to come to U.S. and work for RFA. I couldn't tell them because if I tell, I am the only daughter, you know, in the family. Um, of course, they don't want me to just disappear like that. They will not bear that, you know, separation. That's my first ever decision without my father's guide. Um, and I, I don't regret it. I don't regret it. If I have and had a hundred times, you know, have to have the decision, I will choose the same. Because freedom is everything. After I came, Chinese government sees my old videos, movies, commercials, everything, and put me in some kind of um, red notes. A red notice. Yeah. Accusing me as uh, separates in that time, in 2001. This red notice meant Ghoul was technically a fugitive. Her parents were forced into early retirement because of her work. Only one word my father was saying, oh, my brave girl, Nozgun. Nozgun 
she was a very heroic woman in Uyghur history who stand, stood up for the Chinese regime and died. So she give, he giving me that name, I feel he is proud of my decision. Even it's so hard and so painful for him. But my mother says, please be careful what you're speaking, you know, what you're saying. And we are, we miss you. We're proud of you. And uh, live happily, live proudly, she says. When was the last time you spoke to her? <sighs> One and a half months ago. But it has several condition. Um, after I call first time, she has to hang up and let the the neighborhood police know I am calling. Then after 15 minutes, I call them again. <laughs> That's the condition she has to follow. And I only can ask, um, you know, how, how was there and about their health, you know, life. And we cannot talk any other sensitive subject. Even I cannot ask other relatives who was being arrested. She's okay. She's okay. She's a very strong. And actually, she is the most strong human being and the woman I know <laughs> I ever seen. More with Gulchandra Hoja after our break. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I want to talk about your reporting if we can, because I think a lot of Americans have an idea of what's happening with the Uyghurs in China, but they may not have the idea that part of the reason they know that is because of the work you've done. So I'm wondering if you can tell the story of how you began reporting and what was happening in your region. In the 2016, I believe, we we find out there's uh, many, many camps called re-education camps, Chinese government saying. And... But we heard horrible story from the camp survivors. They described there is like crime against humanity. And the first, um, the international media was questioning so much, you know, and couldn't believe. And because of the very low knowledge about where, where is the Uyghur region, where who are the Uyghurs? So we have to give information about all you know background and take so much time. And the 2018 major media start to you know watching the Uyghur region, what's going on, and then 
Chinese government couldn't hide well. And they said, first, they denying we don't have concentration camp. And second, they were announcing, oh, those are not concentration camp. Those are education, you know, re-education camps. Then they denying that again, they, they are like uh, training camps for the, you know, for providing job to Uyghurs and other minorities. So they changing their tones. Of course, after we, you know, spoke out, many of stories comes out. And then the whole world, you know, believing us, what's going on. Who was the first victim you interviewed? Where you thought, oh, I know what's happening. Yeah, Omar Bak Ali was born in Uyghur region, um, Pichan, and he married and moved to Kazakhstan. Actually, he has dual citizenship. Chinese and Kazakh. He was working in what travel companies between Kazakh and the Uyghur region. When he went to uh, Uyghur region in 2016 and get arrested and questioning, you know, to did you participate any terrorist group, you know, any kind of uh, threat and uh, he has more than one year experience in several camps and tortured. After he get out from the China uh, because of family members fight for him, he reunite with his family in Kazakhstan. I was reading the Holocaust Memorial Museum's report about what's happening to the Uyghur people. Mm-hmm. And a, a few things stood out to me. One was something you've been getting out in this conversation, which is this kind of slowly heating up situation where you grew up in a region and were able to have a Uyghur identity and slowly, slowly it was like a vise tightening and all of a sudden it seemed like things got much worse, but really groundwork had been laid for a long time. Like one thing that stood out to me was the fact that the Chinese government, yes, has camps that people have probably heard about, has done really atrocious things, and then also has put in place these incentives for Han Chinese to move to the Uyghur region and not just move to the Uyghur region, but do things like marry Uyghur women. And your children, if you're in a family that's Han and Uyghur, they may get a preferential slot at university. So all of these ways that incentivize Uyghur culture breakdown that I just hadn't understood the sheer breadth of what was happening. Some call it genocide with uh, justification, including U.S. government. Uh, China's crimes, genocide or crimes against humanity. You know, right now, the many, many more countries recognize it. So Chinese government sees us like the enemies because of we are the first news outlet uh, cover the issues in uh, 
our homeland. Uh, what's going on in the Uyghur region. That's why uh, Chinese government target our families back home uh, trying to silence us. Uh, for example, my family member, 24 of them, one night, uh, just in one night, Chinese government uh, sent them to camp in 2018, February. 24 of them in one night? Yes. In one night. Do you feel lucky that you left? I cannot describe that as lucky, you know. Being a human, when your loved ones suffering, you wish you want to be with them, of course, right? Rather, I want to be with them. Like this burden. Like burning outside of this fire, like I feel it's very hard. Um, that's why only release for me is work harder to do something for them. But I feel never enough. You're never enough doing to help them. Physically, I'm here, yeah. But mentally, I I am suffering with them together because I cannot say I'm lucky, I'm happy without them. I read that your kids, you couldn't bring them to visit their grandparents, but your husband was able to. Only my oldest one. It was in... 2008 Olympic time. We picked that time because of we believe uh, that specific time is international media have eye on the Chinese government, you know, China, and spot also Uyghur region. So we strongly believe they cannot do anything, you know, to harm. So I I will watch them. I will, you know, so me and my husband was decided maybe we should you know try to go there and make grandpa grandma proud you know and see their own grandchildren smell her kiss her <laughs> have that feeling so my husband was bravely says yes we have to do it this is the moment you know we we could we could try and we tried, but in two weeks, my husband says, immediately, you know, they sending to police to watch him every day. Every morning they call and they write down the plans, what he going to do that day, daily routine. But what we bring to our family is a hope, you know, the, the love. <laughs> how much I miss them. So they sees my daughter as sees me. Um, that's the happiest moment for them. You mentioned how the one time your parents have seen one of your children was the last Olympics and that you've last spoken to your mother six weeks ago. So I wonder if you think that this Olympics... Are you, are you going to give her a call 
during this time, thinking maybe this is... No. No. Why? Anything Chinese government established have some big meeting or some uh, holidays coming, that's the most dangerous moment for Uyghurs. Tension, you know, the Chinese government will spend more to control Uyghurs. So you're saying now is the most dangerous time? Yes, most dangerous time. They don't want anybody, you know, uh, giving information about Uyghur region to the outside. The what kind of pressure they're facing. That's why I don't want to put them in more danger. So I decide to not to call. I just pray. It sounds like your work has come at a tremendous cost. All Uyghurs, I believe, just like me right now, any Uyghur, and if you ask any Uyghur abroad, they have some family members, even maybe friends, close friends, loved ones, still in uh, concentration camps. Nobody is happy. Nobody. In Uyghurs, we, we says, is it harder to burn middle of the fire or around the fire. So we, we were just like that. We all suffered. Even we are not in the Uyghur homeland, not in the concentration camps. Mentally, we are suffered. Cool. I, I'm just in awe of your work, and I'm really grateful for you joining us. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's really an honor to talk to you, too. Thank you for giving us the, the voice, you know, giving us the, another platform to speak out. Chetra Hoja is a weaker journalist with Radio Free Asia. At least two dozen of her family members have been arrested during the Chinese crackdown on the weaker minority. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Dal Shad, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Daniel Hewitt. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. Stay tuned to this feed. Lizzie O'Leary is going to take the baton for a couple days, and she's going to be here with What Next TBD. You are not going to want to miss it. And I will be back in this feed bright and early on Monday. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.